Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Stay standing as we read God's Word together from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, yes, if you'd like to follow along in the uh, hymnals in, the, in front of you at page 807, uh, this is the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Lord, again, we just thank you for your word, um, and we thank you for what specifically it tells us today um, in, in, in the scriptures. Um, and so, Lord, we, we just give ourselves to you now and submit ourselves to you, submit ourselves uh, to your word in your name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Be seated, welcome everyone. Good morning. You need some sort of response. Like, what do you say to welcome? Thank you. Good morning, I'm very glad that you're here. So as uh, we began last week, we're walking through the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of the gospel, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and we established some things last week that I'm, I'm, I'm prone to go back and rehash everything, but we just don't have time to do that today. Um, and so there's a couple things you can do. You can go listen to last week's sermon either on our website. Uh, you can read the text for yourself and do some study. That'd be fun, right? Um, but we're not going to just rehash everything but here's where we're going today. Um, first of all, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we, we provide Bibles in the seats in front of you, um, and we're on page 807 um, in that copy of that black Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're also free to take that. That's a gift that uh, we wanna give to you uh, because we believe that the scriptures are that profound um, and that important to have before us. And I think we're gonna see that today. I think we're gonna see in a pretty amazing way the way that the scriptures speak to us, okay? Um, and so last week we began this trek through Matthew's gospel. In Matthew, um, he doesn't come right out and ask it. Um, you don't ever just see him um, come, come right out and ask the question in this way, but Matthew, a real person in real history, is answering the question of who is Jesus, who, who is Jesus? And so if that question's in your mind, um, if maybe you're wrestling with who Jesus is, 
We have a, a beautiful representation from thousands of years ago of, of a man who, who walked with Jesus, who was an eyewitness to the life of the historical Jesus and in real history, we have a, a man who is answering that question. Um, and it's a pretty profound way. He doesn't only answer this question for us in chapter one, by the way. So chapter one, there's a lot of foundation, but Matthew's going to continue answering and spelling out the answer to this question of who is Jesus? And so it's safe to say, let's kind of look culturally, it's safe to say that, that we're at a little bit of a disadvantage in that we are not Jewish people. So that's just, you know, if, if, if no one knew that, we're not, most of us in here, not that I know of, we're not Jewish people. And so we're at a little bit of a disadvantage in understanding the weight of what Matthew's saying because because what these words and this claim would have meant to the Jewish mind is hard for us to understand today. I mean, it's, it's really hard for us to feel the weight of someone who says, I was with Jesus and who this Jesus is, is the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's a massive claim. Their lives for generations, literally for generations, revolved around these promises that someone would come from the line of Abraham, someone would come from the line of David. And unlike many today, many of, of us even in here today, their faith actually dominated everything in their lives. It dominated every area of their lives. So again, we have to kind of recognize a little bit of a, of a cultural disadvantage, of a historical disadvantage maybe that we have today that we don't quite feel the weight of this. But here's the good, note, the good news. You don't have to feel the weight of it culturally or historically to be changed and transformed by the truth about who Jesus is. And so that's what we're gonna, that's just kind of where we're, we're going today. So here we go. We're doing the eyes on the book thing. I need to, I was thinking this week, like, let's just like kind of have like a eyes on the book time. Eyes on the book, all right? So like, you get your eyes down on the book. I won't yell, I promise. You know me, I'm not a yeller. So um, we're gonna just get our eyes on the book. And so if you haven't been with us before, probably the best thing to do is to have a, have a physical copy of God's word in your hands. And so maybe that's digital. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a phone or a tablet, totally fine. Um, or maybe it's a hard copy, which is why we've provided those for you. And so the best thing you can do for your understanding and your awareness of what's going on is just to follow along right now. And so what Matthew has done up to this point is make here, here's, here's, this is something really big that we need to hear. What Matthew has done up to this point is make a definitive claim to who Jesus is. He has made a definitive claim to the, to the personhood of Jesus, like his realness, his, his, his flesh, his humanity that can literally be traced through a genealogical line to David and to Abraham. And so we have to keep in mind how this genealogy up to this point impacts the way one is received and understood in culture. Um, especially the one in which Matthew is writing. And so we've got to look at what Matthew is doing here and we've either got to believe what he's saying or we've just got to call him a lunatic, right? Like, man, David is either off, or Matthew is either off his hinges by saying that this is the one who's the son of David, son of Abraham, or maybe he's telling the truth. But we've got to, we've got to, kind, of, we've got to kind of deal with that. So let's read in verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We've got to stop here for just a minute. This is problematic. You guys see what's problematic in this verse? Well, there's some things that you probably see are problematic, and there's other things that may not 
seem so problematic, but I'm gonna tell you why they're problematic. Like, this is just a problematic verse. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that like, from, a, from a way of, of doubting what it's saying. I'm just saying there's problems here. The, the people who are hearing this, there's, there's issues. Um, because firstly, Jesus Christ, who Matthew has already established, he's already come out of the gate and said, this is, this is what we believe, this is who we claim Jesus to be. He has already established Jesus Christ as the fulfillment who has come to deliver all of his people. And yet, this verse right here is saying that he is, he's born. It's an it's a, it's a account of the birth of Jesus. And so this, this king, this Messiah that these people had waited on for generations and generations is not taking over a throne the way that we would think, but is in the womb. The, the announcement of, of a king who has come, he is, he is in the womb. He's in a manger. This is, this is unbelievable and maybe even offensive to these people. They are, they are looking for something very specific to happen with this Messiah that he would come and that he would, he would deliver them. And so in a few verses, we'll see Matthew address the, that misconception. He addresses that later in the text. He addresses this misconception of, of what exactly it was this Messiah was coming to accomplish. The second problem that we see, the second reason why it's problematic is that Mary and Joseph, what does it say? Had been betrothed to Joseph. Anybody using that word lately? Anybody betrothed in here? You're like, I don't, I don't know if I'm betrothed, but it sounds painful. I don't, I don't want that. They're betrothed. Now, this doesn't necessarily equate to what we would think of as marriage, but it also doesn't necessarily equate to what we would think of as engagement. It's kind of, kind of somewhere in the middle. It's kind of like a, a mix. Betrothal is kind of a, of a mix between these two ideas that we have of, of, of marriage and engagement. And so if, if, if it's closer to one of them, if, if you're like, okay, I want to try to kind of get my mind around what betrothal is, it's probably closer to marriage than it is just straight up modern engagement. And so essentially betrothal was to be legally bound to one another, that you are legally bound. Like if, 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 the, if the man in the betrothal were to die in this culture, the woman was legally pegged as a widow. She, she, would, she would have been known as a widow, even though their, their marriage would not have yet been completed. Now, think of betrothal as, as basically as engagement with, with all of the legal and, and, and covenantal implications of marriage, but without the benefit of marriage. You know, the benefit, like, we're not talking about taxes here. We're talking about the benefit of marriage. So think of betrothal as, as, as marriage without the, one of the benefits. By the way, that's not the only benefit of marriage, right? That's not, that's not what we're saying. But come on, guys. Um, it's, 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 it's engagement. It's, it's marriage without the benefit of, of marriage. And so there was typically this, this prolonged period of time between initial betrothal and like making the marriage official. And, and some people say it was probably about a year. The couple would live separately. They would not live together. They would, they would still live separately, but they would be exclusively and legally committed to one another. Kind of what betrothal is. And, and so eventually a public ceremony would happen and they would come together. They would, they would come together and they would consummate this marriage. And so... The problem, as you're starting to see here, is that in this culture, for Mary to turn up pregnant is a problem, right? They're not married. 
they're, they're, in, they're engaged and they're covenanted with one another. But there's, there's a problem here, not only from the outside looking in, Joseph and Mary, are you guys, you know, being faithful in, in, in what the covenant of marriage is? But then even you've got this issue with Joseph where he finds out that his girl is carrying somebody's baby, right? And so you can see why this is problematic. And, and here's the deal. Here's, here's what we see here. Um, we'll see this more when we get to verse 19, but, but by the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, you can go read that later. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, by, by the, the standards of the Old Testament law, this, this was not just fornication, this was adultery. She had not only been promiscuous, if, if in fact she had been with another man, but she had also full-on committed adultery. She's been unfaithful. And that meant, because of its presence in the law, that there was legal action that Joseph could take. Not only legal action, but if we look at the law, lethal action, that she could be stoned. And so this was an action Joseph could have and maybe even should have taken. I mean, he, he very much had the grounds at this time to get the evidence that he needed probably to, to do this. Thirdly, what's the third problem here? The third problematic thing in this text is that Mary was not pregnant as a result of, so we've said all that, which leads us to another problem. Mary's not pregnant because of fornication, but she's also not pregnant because of intimacy with who was leg- she was legally bound to. But the text says that she is found to be with child from what? Okay, that's kind of cuckoo, right? Like, it's kind of weird. This is, this is problematic, by the way, we'll get, we'll get to more of that because later on, we're, 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 our minds are brought back to the, the virgin birth, the conception by the Holy Spirit. But what I want us to see is, because in your mind, some of us are thinking, that doesn't work. <laughs> A baby doesn't come to be without conception. That's what life is. That's how life happens. And so you, you, maybe that's swirling around in your mind. Maybe that's swirling around in your head. But here's what I want us to see first. This is not an isolated account of the virgin birth. Like this isn't just Matthew off on, his, off on his own, off his hinges, talking about the virgin birth. No, this isn't isolated. It appears several times throughout the scriptures. And not only later, but hundreds and maybe thousands of years before in Isaiah chapter seven. We see that later in the text, it's, it's referenced, Isaiah chapter seven. So this isn't an isolated reference to a virgin birth. This is something that had been prophesied about in Isaiah chapter seven, and, and it will appear again in Luke's gospel. And so you've got several people, several witnesses, which by the way, I know for us, like we don't know what truth is and we can't track down what, what, the, what the reality is on anything, but like the word of witnesses held a lot of weight. And they were honest, not all of them, but the word of multiple witnesses, witnesses was a major thing. And so you have witnesses prophesying about this. You've got people who are with Jesus, viewing his life, not making this, this decision in a vacuum, not making this, this statement in a vacuum, but making the statement from an eyewitness account. And by the way, something else we need to see, this isn't a text about the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe it is actually. Um, the Holy Spirit... For those of you who are kind of familiar with what the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is not just a New Testament thing. We know that, right? Like, it's, 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 not, like, it's not like the Holy Spirit, like God was like, all right, we gotta figure out how to get Jesus into Mary's womb, and so I'm just gonna create this Holy Spirit and deploy him, you know, to, to conceive this, this baby. 
No, the, the, the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament thing. The Holy Spirit is no more, and this is important for us because it has implications for us. The Holy Spirit is no more an afterthought than Jesus is. The, the scriptures tell us that Jesus himself was in the beginning with God. You know who else was with God? The Spirit of God. The, the, the Holy Spirit is no like New Testament you know, invention. It is some, it, it, he is someone who has been around and who's been active, and we're gonna see it again. Like, I love how this, this text basically just repeats itself and like deepens itself as we go, and so we're gonna see that. Let's move on to verse 19. This is what verse 19 says. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so Joseph knows what his options are. Joseph knows what his options are here. He, he, he understands the Old Testament law. He knows that he has some options here on how to put Mary away. And it's safe to assume the way he's feeling at the time, right? Men, do we, do we probably understand that like, your wife gets pregnant, not by you, but by someone else. We can assume that we know there's kids in here and some of them are just looking at me like, what? So it's safe to say, it's safe to assume what the way that Joseph is feeling at this time. However, it does seem, and this is, this is some people will, will, will kind of draw our attention to some extra biblical um, historical Jewish law and extra, not, not Jewish law, but Jewish history and Jewish things. Um, what, what it appears to be here is that Joseph has an option to avoid stoning here. Joseph, I don't know what it is. I'm not gonna teach it from here, but Joseph, Joseph obviously has some option to put her away without the lethal part. Put her away to divorce her quietly. That's why it says he resolved, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph was a just man. It says that he was just. He was just in that the law allowed and required divorce in this case. But we also see some of, some of Joseph's compassion here. We see some of Joseph's compassion in, in his desire to not put Mary to open shame, rather to quietly divorce her. Hey, keep in mind something so far in the text. If you're reading the text, this is something that I had to, like, I, I realized later as I was studying, but something to keep in mind about the text so far is Joseph has still not been made aware of how the conception came to be. At least in the, in the layout of the text, the angel has not come to him yet and say, that which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. We know that because Matthew writes that, but from what we can see as far as just the layout of the text, Joseph has not been told that this is of the Holy Spirit. And so we're gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna see that all he knows is that Mary is pregnant. <laughs> All of his decision-making up to this point, all of the things that he's processing is based on this single piece of information that his girl is pregnant. So we haven't even got to the fun part yet. Let's look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So now Joseph is getting caught up to speed. Here's your, here's your free practical wisdom for the day, by the way. Joseph is up against a major life decision here. Like not only, a, a, not only up against a major life decision, but a major life decision within a major life decision. <laughs> like not only whether to divorce her, but how. Do it quietly or do it by public stoning. So he's up against a, a big 
life decision. And what does he do? He goes to sleep. So here's your free piece of advice. Friends, before you make a major decision in your life, sleep on it. <laughs> sleep on it, okay? That's, that's free. That's not the point of the text. Um, I'm partly serious about that, but this is far from the point that's trying to be made. But there's something profound. He goes to sleep. The angel speaks to him, and he wakes up, and his mind's changed. And so go to sleep. Maybe you'll see an angel. Um, an angel appeared to Joseph and filled him in on what was up. So notice how this verse unfolds. So just kind of like, walk, let's walk through this, this verse in verse 20. Is that where we're at, verse 20? So notice how this verse unfolds. Joseph, son of David. So the angel's acknowledging Joseph as the son of David. We also know, because what's already been established in chapter one, that Jesus was the son of David through Joseph's line, which as we see in Luke, we're gonna see, We'll explain this later. He's also the son of David through the line of Mary. But he was the son of David through the line of Joseph. And so in this culture, there were, there were two ways to be recognized as a son. There were two ways to be, to be recognized in a son. One of those, most naturally, is the natural way of conception. But the other way was through adoption. And so Joseph is moving in as the adoptive father of the Son of God. Adoption, as it does today, affords the adopted one all the legal rights of the father. There's no distinction. So uh, many of you know that um, out of my six children, two of them are adopted. Our oldest two, Emily and Gabe, uh, we adopted. Um, and I was talking to Lindsay about this yesterday, trying to just make sure I remembered all the details right. But we sat in a courtroom. Like we sat in a courtroom on December 16th, coming up, 2014, to adopt Emily and Gabe. And the, and the, judge, the judge looked at us. I mean, before he kind of like, I don't even remember if he did his gavel, but kind of before he wrapped things up, he kind of took his judge hat off for a minute and he looked at us. And he said, I want, I want to make sure you're aware of something. He said, he said these adopted children, the, when the state, when the when the when the government, whatever, looks at, at these children, there is, there is, there's, there, there may be a record somewhere down on a file somewhere, but when they look at, your, look at your children and your family and the way it's made up, there's not any distinction between your adopted children and your biological children. This judge brought up the point of our, our inheritance. Like he, he got personal. Like, I don't know what made him think I'm gonna have an inheritance to leave, but... <laughs> He got real personal and he said, hey, even, even when it comes time for you to leave something, for, for you to, to leave an adopted child off of your inheritance is, is not the picture that we have here, is not, is not what, what we're doing here. That's, that's illegal, essentially, to, to, to allow an inheritance for, for there to be a distinction in that way between your children. And so a, a man could adopt a son, and they would be afforded all the legal rights. Their genealogy became their child's genealogy. Um, now, now there's, there's obviously really big nuances in all of that. But the point is this, is that, is that Joseph is accepting Jesus as a son. Joseph goes from, how do I put this woman away, to hearing from the Lord and choosing to obey the Lord and not stepping away. 
And jo- Joseph accepts Jesus as a son. And, and something even further than that that has ado- uh, implications for adoption is that, is that Joseph is part of naming his son. He's part of, he's part of naming him. Again, culturally, I, like, I know it's fun to pick out names and husbands. I know like, it's fun to bug your wife about all the crazy names that you have in your mind. But like naming a son was a, a massive, massive moment in this culture. And so Joseph accepts Jesus as his son and he, Joseph names Jesus. And, and so here's the other part that's happening that we need to see. So we, we looked at Joseph, son of David. And so we see that Jesus becomes the son of David through the adoption from Joseph. But the next thing that we see is, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So in other words, put real plainly, don't divorce her. Whatever you've been thinking, don't do it. Don't, don't divorce her. If Jesus was to be from the line of David, it would be through Joseph completing this marriage, taking Mary as his wife and becoming the legal father of the Messiah, the legal father of Jesus. So here's a point that we could draw from this, and I don't want us to miss this because it's gonna show up over and over again in the book of Matthew. God is all over this, right? We talked last week about all the crazy people in the line of, uh, the line of Jesus, like, Tamar and, and Rahab and Bathsheba and, and Ruth, who was a Gentile, not even a Jew. And then just all this craziness in the line. And kind of the point of that is, is that God is sovereign and God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. Amen? He's faithful. So, so sorry, let me say that again. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us. Amen? He's, that's the point of Matthew chapter one. And so the point here that I, a point that I think we can draw is that God is all over this. But you know who else is active in this, right? Satan. Satan's active in this. And, and I bring out that, but you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? Well, let's, let's look at this. Something goes incredibly wrong if this marriage falls apart. Something goes wrong if this marriage falls apart. Like Joseph, Jesus, Jesus's line connecting him to David and Abraham, something could kind of go rocky and Satan can't stand what's going on here. In fact, Satan isn't gonna go away. This is why I draw this point out because in chapter two, what's gonna happen? Herod's gonna put out this decree to kill all the newborn babies. You know whose work that is? That's a work of the enemy saying like, my time is limited here. I gotta put this savior who I hear of, this, this king of the Jews to death. I gotta just... Gotta to, got to use my decree to make sure that I can control all this. And then in chapter four, Satan comes directly at Jesus. And so right now you, you may see Satan kind of, kind of working under behind the scenes to try and t- take things off, kind of, kind of knock things off kilter. And then in chapter four, we're gonna to get to that here in several weeks. Satan comes directly to Jesus and he tempts Jesus in the desert in a time of vulnerability for Jesus. And then even the crucifixion, Satan thinks he's got Jesus, right? And then guess what? He don't got Jesus. Jesus comes up from the grave and he's alive and he reigns. So this whole first chapter and the book to follow, it's important, is not, is not a tale about Satan, but a witness to the divine sovereignty of God and the power of his son until Jesus establishes his kingdom as crucified, resurrected king. Like that's what the point of Matthew is, is that Jesus is the real king and nothing's gonna wipe him out. Nothing's gonna take this out. And so there's, there's one more profound piece that we can't miss in this verse. 
and it's, and it's, the, it's the problematic piece. And we're not going to just dive into it. I can give you some good resources if you really want to dive into it, but I want to just kind of draw what I think is being tried to be said. So in verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So as I've said, the Spirit is no new invention, right? He's not, he's not a new invention. Um, while, this, while this Holy Spirit conception would have been unthinkable to Joseph, at least initially, the Spirit of God, as early as the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, as early as the Old Testament, and let me just like, not just vague Old Testament, Genesis chapter one, verse two, that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the earth, the face of the waters, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So the, the Holy Spirit regularly appears all throughout the Old Testament as the agent of God's personal activity in the world. So the Spirit's not some new invention, and he's not some B-team guy that you, know, you bring up from the farm league. No, from day one, the Holy Spirit is, is, the, is the agent through which God works in his world, revives people, brings death to life in all of those things. And so this, what that tells us is this, is that this coming of the long-awaited Messiah as a savior and a king is a spirit-filled, spirit-initiated moment. I mean, this is a, this is a Holy Spirit-empowered moment Spirit-initiated, spirit-filled moment in actual history. This is not some bedtime story for your children. This is historic. This is real. We believe this. This is a, this is a, a pillar of the foundation of, of the faith of believers throughout the generations. And if it's not important today, then you've got some reconciling to do, not only with the scriptures, but with the historical church that this is something that we believe and that we embrace. In fact, look what the angel says next that, that I think confirms this point of this spirit-filled activity in verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so last week, we dove deeply into the name meaning of Jesus. Uh, the, the name meaning of Jesus Christ. So Jesus kind of being the, 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 the modern at the time name for Joshua, Yeshua, which means God saves. And then Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the title of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He's the one that we've waited for. He's the one that we've longed for. He's the one who's going to deliver us. And so here's the point that this virgin birth provides is that it's miraculous, it is divine, it is holy, it is foundational to who we are. But most of all, I think I already said this, it's, it's miraculous. But just as miraculous, here's why we're talking about this spirit-filled, spirit-initiated moment of, of this virgin birth, because the next thing out of Matthew's mouth talks about his people being saved from their sins, and so as miraculous and as hard as it is to wrap our minds around the virgin birth, just as miraculous is the fact that, that you can be saved from your sins. If, when was it like, I'm not using this as some kind of litmus for the, for the strength of your faith, but like, when was the last time you were just captivated by the fact that Jesus 
awoke, <laughs> waked, I don't know, that Jesus resurrected your dead heart and made you alive. Man, that is, a, that is miraculous. And Matthew's trying to draw our eyes to that, that the miracle here very much is a virgin birth, but even more so that someone can come and save people from sins. So he's saying something about the depth of our sin and the, the grace of God in this. Just as miraculous as a virgin birth is a, is a, is a regeneration of our dead heart. Ephesians 2 said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were, man, you were stuck. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had for us made us alive. Hey, I, it's okay if you think I'm crazy to believe in virgin birth, then at least call me crazy for believing in a resurrection too. Because they're, they're both impossible, right? I mean, one of them's not more possible from a human standpoint than the other. They're, they're, they're both just important. So the virgin birth is the result of the power and the activity of the Holy Spirit. But we have to see that what else is the result of the power and the activity of the Holy Spirit is, is us being saved from our sins. That's what, that's what Matthew's trying to tell us. The Spirit of God is not just some peripheral, insignificant, one-dimensional piece in this story. Like he's not just, he's not just the one who conceived, he's not, or he's not just the one who, who put, the, put Jesus in the womb of Mary. The Spirit of God is bringing the Son of God into the world and he's bringing salvation into the world. He's not just some, again, one-dimensional peripheral part of this where he did his job and he gets to leave. No, the Spirit is here. The Spirit is active, still awakening dead hearts. By the way, if that makes you a little uncomfortable, the Holy Spirit will not be a stranger to the life and the ministry of Jesus. As we go throughout the book of Matthew, Holy Spirit's not a stranger, so we know he doesn't just come in and leave. The Spirit is a, is a I think, could be considered a focal point of the gospel, even to today, the Spirit dwelling within us. So what this salvation, so verse 21 says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew, is, Matthew knows that this is gonna stump some people. He says this because it's going to stump some people. What this salvation from their sins addresses in its immediate context is something that the people of God really needed to be instructed on. What were they looking for? Were they looking for a deliverer from their sins? necessarily. They, they knew that. I mean, I, the Old Testament makes reference to that. But, but was it primarily what they were focused on and looking for? No. Namely, their focus was that this Messiah, that this king that was coming would, would deliver and save them from their enemies, that he would be some sort of national, political, social liberator. But what Matthew is saying here is very intentionally from their sins up against everything else that they thought they were gonna be saved from. It's from their sins that they're going to be delivered. And so verses 20 through, 22 through 25, let's read all that as we kind of wrap this thing up. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so we spent a lot of time last week spelling out how Jesus was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised in a Messiah. And it's important for us that when we look at Jesus being that fulfillment, that we not be so captivated by how precisely those prophets predicted these things. The point is, is that we would be captivated over and over again at how perfectly Jesus fulfilled these things. That's the point. The point of the prophecies is not the prophet. The point of the prophecies is the, is the king, is the savior, is the Messiah. That's what we are to see. And in this, in this text, what does it say? Emmanuel, which means God with us. John, in, in John's gospel, he frames this Emmanuel, God with us, in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how John captures God with us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. We've beheld his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is how John captures that. And what's beautiful about that, I, I think like when you're, when, you're, when you're trying to, one of the ways I think to, I've, I've called it like a, a powerful apologetic, the incarnation. Because for many who don't believe in the Lord, for many who don't know, like if, we can, if I can trust God or even if I don't even know if he exists, what kind of God would a person have created that didn't leave that God forever dwelling on a throne and, and create a God that would dwell among people? Kings don't do that. Man, I think that's a, a beautiful and powerful apologetic. First of all, because no one makes a story like that up. Like if you're the fiction writer, you're not writing that story. But if that's true, if that's true, if Jesus is the king, and, and ultimately this is all based, I think all based on the resurrection. I mean, if Jesus rose from the dead, man, I better believe him. And so it's the resurrection that we've got to maybe deal with. But, but the word dwelling among us, God himself dwelling among his people shows that first of all, that is, man, that is just, Unbelievable. And is that really what millions and millions and millions of people throughout millennia and millennia have based their faith on? Yes, it's exactly what we've based our faith on. And we believe that it's true, but it also shows the love of God for us. Jesus isn't, what this text is saying is that Jesus is not God above us, Jesus is not God beyond us, Jesus is not God just near us. Jesus is not just God aware of us, although all of those things are true, right? God is certainly beyond us. God is certainly above us. He's certainly near us. He's certainly aware of us. But this Emmanuel is God with us, right here in the presence of his people. Eugene Peterson says it like this, that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Hey, I don't know what your neighborhood's like, but, but if, I'm a, if, I'm, if I'm from like a, a, a particular socioeconomic and, and, and certain demographic, like knowing that the king is in my neighborhood, that's where that really carries weight. You know, for, for those of you who live in the bougie gated places, like, you're like, oh, welcome. Hey, just another guy. What, what's with the, the sandals? You know, like, no, like there's, we should be captivated by Jesus moving into our neighborhood. That Jesus is 
chosen to dwell in us. This would have completely, this is, this is where we have to understand this, this, how it was received. This would have completely baffled the original readers. God with us? Like we've had to do things for hundreds and thousands of years to, to clean ourselves up, to just to get into God's presence. And now he's, he's among us, he's, he's with us? Just as amazing and profound is that, is that once Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven where he sits now, that not only do we have a God who is with us, what's even more wacky is that we have a God who is in us. Do we believe that? That we are the dwelling place of God, not this building? Hey, like I don't, nine years ago, this building burned down. I'm sure glad this was not the dwelling place of God. We are the dwelling place of God. That God is, God is in us. We are his people, his temple, this dwelling place. And for today, this is where we're gonna land the plane. The greatest need that each of us have. I'm just gonna tell you this straight up. This is for believers and non-believers. Believers, if you think that the gospel no longer applies or sustains you, then I'm praying that you would understand that the gospel is as, is as much of a witness and as much of a, of a need for us today than it's ever been. Man, I've told you before, I, I came to Christ when I was 14 years old and I did not know what the gospel was. I'm 32 now and I feel like I've, I have not needed the gospel more than any time in my life than today. I've been a follower of Jesus for a lot of years the greatest need that each of us have and that our world needs is a deliverance from our sin. That's it. Your greatest need is a deliverance from your sin. And, and I, I, saw, I saw someone that I really respect and admire say that, that, that our culture, we almost, we almost have this, this desire for a salvation from salvation. You know, like we almost have this desire to be saved from needing salvation. Like, I can just do things on my own. I don't need salvation. But, but he went on to say, like, how great of an irony that we need salvation even from salvation, that salvation is the thing that we need the most, to be saved and delivered from our sins. And this is why Jesus came. The scriptures will tell us Jesus came to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 says it this way. You don't have to turn there. I'm gonna turn there. First Timothy 1.15 says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Hey, Matthew's gonna captivate our hearts and our minds with this person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to save us and to deliver us and that's what we need our deepest and greatest need, our greatest longing is to be delivered. And the incarnation says, you can be delivered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and what it says. Um, we thank you that, Lord, we have so many, so many, so many ideas um, and, and questions. Lord, thank you that we can have questions about, about who you are. Like we can, we can seek what it looks like. We can seek who you are. Um, we can seek, um, Lord, the, the times in our life when, we, when we're doubting and, and when, we're, when, we're, when we're seeking something. And Lord, those things don't 
as, as your word will, will make clear to us, it doesn't cause you to recoil. It doesn't cause you to, to, to flee from us or to keep us at, at arm's length, but, but Lord, you, you even draw us in in those moments. And so thank you that you show us that in a, in a really miraculous and powerful way through the incarnation, that, that, you, that you don't dwell only above us, but you dwell with us and you dwell among us and you dwell, you dwell in the lives of those who are, your, who are your disciples. And so you show us that you are so full of, of love and mercy and grace that you would dwell among us, but Lord, that you are, that Jesus, you are so committed to the holiness of the Father and coming and living a perfect life, a life that we could never live. So Lord, I pray today that for those who are followers of Jesus, that, that we would continue to believe and trust the gospel. Pray that if someone doesn't know you, Lord, that, that, that they would believe the gospel. Like not all the, not all the, the extra stuff, but Lord, just the, the simple gospel that Jesus came and he lived, died, and was raised and is seeking our hearts in our worship even today. Father, just as we, as we respond to you now um, in communion um, and with singing, Father, we just pray that you would, you would continue to draw our hearts in um, and, and to, to captivate us with, with your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.